is brought to you by Organissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair and beauty source and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today at www.arganissima.com Arganissima New York. Your beauty is our duty. You are listening to Let's Talk About It with your show host, the celebrity doc, Dr. Cheryl Bryant-Bruce. Greetings, everybody. It is Dr. Cheryl Bryant-Bruce, MD, the celebrity doc, here with... Isham Elenmati, Hurricane H. We are here with Chatters That Matter. Let's talk about it. Our runaway hit talk show that features information about health and wellness, touching every aspect of your life. We are here to educate and entertain you. This is your show. And tonight's show is featuring none other then a good friend of mine, Francis Cummings Jr. He is a DO, an osteopath, and he is going to tell you what that is. And tonight, we are going to be talking about oxygen turbocharging your life. So, Francis, pleased to have you with us. Glad you could join us tonight. Francis is a busy, a busy physician, and he did have patients today, so we're really excited to have him. Welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to connect with both you, uh, Hurricane, and, and your audience out there. Um, so I guess you said, well, what is an osteopathic physician? Uh, yes. Well, they're, they're licensed physicians in, in all 50 states. Um, traditionally, they used to be primarily in pri- uh, primary care, uh, but we have uh, osteopaths in all, in all the specialties. Um, one of the things that used to make osteopaths uh, unique is um, the form follows function kind of thing, how the body is completely integrated. Uh, and that's kind of how we looked at the person as a whole. Uh, and, and to that end, what we also learned usually in the first two years, is a significant amount of uh, osteopathic manipulation. Uh, and so that would be what most the lay person uh, public would know as, you know, the adjustments that chiropractors normally do or, uh, you know, mild fascia releases. There's, you know, there's dozens of techniques. And we spend a lot of times on our backs uh, being worked on or our bellies and actually working on patients or, or actually our fellow students. And so you can, with, uh, uh, I guess, amount of, a significant amount of practice, your fingers can tell you a lot. Your eyes can tell you a lot. Your ears can tell you a lot without even, you know, you know looking at a panel. And so that okay. was kind of the thing that made uh, osteopathic profession somewhat uh, unique. Um, now, how is an osteopath different than a chiropractor? So um, they they are different in that they actually came from us. Initially, it was the 
the osteopaths who we had the, the adjustments and the, the different techniques. We also had a lot of the medicals or the ology, as I call them, you know, the mm -hmm. biology, the physiology, you know, the neurology. And so we actually had all that schooling work. And so initially, uh, the chiropractor or the, um, the chiropractic or chiropractors would only take the, the mechanical portion of it and say, oh, okay. well, we'll learn how to crack the neck or we'll look at how to crack the elbow or the back or something like that. And they didn't have initially all of the ologies that, you know, say that we had. Um, mm -hmm. But they've come up to speed on that, you know, significantly over the, you know, the last probably 40, 50 years. And so, you know, they're probably on par with uh, a lot of the ologies that, that we do or that okay. we've learned. Okay. And how is their training different than yours? Um, I think that in terms of the mechanics, it's probably very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the, the medical, it's probably a little bit less because uh, they're probably not integrated. They are to some degree, but not integrated with some of the hospital systems and residencies as a, a MDUs or DOs are. And so, and I think that they actually have a, you know, from a personal experience, I think they have a better model in terms of, okay, after you've gotten your degree, hanging your shingle and going out there and, uh, and, and making a difference, you know, and, and yes. giving a living. So I think there's a, there's a difference there in terms of the, the, the chiropractors as versus, say, the DOs or the MDs. Yes, they do seem to have a, a much better business training yeah. than, than we do. And yes. that's, I mean, that's really important. People don't realize how important that is because they're like, well, you know, you're, you're, you're just doctors, but medicine is a business. And in order to have an effective practice, you do have to have some business acumen. And I think that they are far better trained at it than, than we are. And yes. hopefully that is changing. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> it has yes. to. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So. If you can tell us, now we're talking about oxygen, but we're not just talking about oxygen. What okay. we're really talking about today is hyperbaric oxygen. So okay. if you can explain to our audience, what is hyperbaric oxygen? And then tell us how you got into it. Oh, okay. So hyperbaric oxygen is, in simple terms, breathing oxygen under pressure. So in a container of some sort with uh, a greater than atmospheric pressure, um, say atmospheric pressure is like I'm sitting in this car right here, you're sitting in your room, this is one atmosphere. You're actually at a greater pressure. So there's more molecules of air pressing on your body per square inch, and at the same time, you're breathing oxygen. When that mm -hmm. happens, oxygen doesn't just become oxygen, oxygen becomes a drug. And you have to think of that. And so there can actually be dose related how much oxygen you take. And then there are usually a lot of things that kind of happen with that, uh, you know, at, at higher doses or lesser doses. And they're actually trying to figure some of that stuff out now when you start looking at some of, let's call it alternative areas of, of hyperbaric oxygen. Right. Now let's talk about that for a second. You said that it's oxygen under pressure. Yes. And I, I just want our audience to understand that air does have a pressure. And, you know, we feel that pressure when we feel the wind. 
And we actually do feel the pressure of air on our skin. And it's kind of a, a weird concept because it's something that we are not aware of. I was in an accident some years back, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of years back, actually. And at the time that I was in the accident, I had an injury to my neck. And that injury uh, resulted in a little bit of spinal shock at the time. It was just a temporary uh, thing. Mm -hmm. But for uh, a few days, I was literally paralyzed from the neck down. And when I woke up, the first awareness that I had was that I could not feel the weight of the air. So you don't realize that air actually has weight until it's not there. Now, then when we talk about oxygen under pressure, having been in a chamber myself, I just want people um, to understand that you do not feel per se the weight of that uh, pressure. You go into the chamber and when I went in the chamber, I was going in with my son and we sat and we colored in coloring book and we ate peanut butter sandwiches and he was none the wiser that he was in a treatment. It was just, oh, we're going in the blue submarine. <laughs> so. So, so, so if I may, uh, yes. we don't have oxygen. So for someone that is not a medical person, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you say under pressure, I was thinking like, you know, maybe like uh, oxygen supplies and things like that when you have your mask and that, you know, that helps you breathe better or whatever in case, especially like in the case of the pandemic that we just had. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but this is more about when you're literally in, in a therapy space where the oxygen is regulated at a different pressure for you or maybe no pressure like well, i guess there is pressure but it's just a different level of dosage of oxygen to get you a better circulation and all that stuff in your system am i getting that correctly yes yes and and probably for your for public to even make it simpler hmm. um we all experience it when we go to the mountains you know hmm. we go to the sure. mountains and our ears start to pop and as we come down, our ears start to clog or we fly in a plane and we start doing the Valsalva or we yawn. That's pressure working on your body. That's essentially hyperbarics right there that you're coming down from, you know, 6,000 feet on a mountain down to the bottom on a ski run, anything like that. That's essentially what hyperbarics is. It's not you're feeling it all over your body. The place you're probably going to feel it, if you're going to feel it, it's probably going to be in your ears. Oh, definitely. I, I hate that feeling when you have to like, uh, yawn and like you got to chew gum or something just to keep it yep. going. Yes. <laughs> and yes. you pop those those ears, you feel like those pops. Um, so, so Dr. You, uh, Dr. Cheryl, you were talking about the, the, the like a chamber where you can actually sit there and relax and just and get a basically an oxygen treatment. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there are different types of, of, of chambers. Uh, Frank, can you elaborate? on yes. the differences in the chambers. And because it's an interesting story, uh, talk to people about how hyperbaric treatments actually began, what they were initially being used for. So the, in terms of the chambers, there's usually two types of chambers. There's, um, there's a soft shell chamber, um, and you might see some sport that athletes have these. Um, they'll take them from the sporting event to sporting events. They're probably about seven, eight feet long. They got a little oxygen concentrator. The difference is, is the pressure that's allowed in, that you can put in that type of, uh, that type of device. So that's about 1.3, 1.4 ATA. So scientific terms, maybe going down to the bottom of a 12 foot pool, 15 foot pool, 
That's about all the pressure. If you, if you dove off a high dive, went into the uh, 15 feet of water, that's the amount of pressure you're going to feel. And so you just, you know, bounce out of your ears and you can sit at the bottom all day long. So that is a soft shell chamber. Now what we have what are called hard shell chambers. Now these are literally, the term applies, they are hard shelled. Most time they're made out of steel. Uh, now these can go considerably deeper and they have different protocols usually associated with them. You can have, you know, you can go 1.4, you can 1, 1.5, 2.0, 2.4, 3ATA. And these can be anywhere from 15 to say like 45 feet of seawater. So that's like, imagine being 45 feet underwater. Same thing, you valve your ears and you really don't feel the pressure on your body everywhere. Now, the, where it really came from initially, I would say, well, the history, we got to back up a little bit. Has everybody heard of the Benz? Yes. Right. Okay, the Benz. And so the Benz Now, just, is, just, just for the audience, really uh, define what the Benz is, okay. because some of the audience may not have heard of the Benz. Okay, the Benz is when you have, um, you have nitrogen in your joints, and it causes excruciating a lot of pain. It came from the caissons when they were building, I believe, it was the Brooklyn Bridge. So these gentlemen would go down into the caisson, and they didn't have oxygen. They would just use compressed air to keep the water out. So these people would go down there, and they would work all day, be fine, and they would come out. But they weren't off-gassing the nitrogen, meaning they weren't getting the nitrogen out of their, out of their blood, and it would actually come into their joints. And what would happen is, is that they start having pain and they would bend over, hence the name, the bends. They would go back to work the next day under pressure. All the nitrogen would go out of the joints back into the solution and voila, they feel better. So hence the name, the bends. But where a lot of the, uh, the hyperbaric came from is came from the, the military for divers. You know, divers mm -hmm. got to do some, let's say, military stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, and Dr. And Dr. Cummings would know that because Dr. Cummings was a naval officer that dove on submarines. No, no, I was a, I was an aviator. I was an aviator. <laughs> I was, okay. uh, but same thing can happen with aviation. You can have sudden decompression, and it's sort of like just coming up from you know 100 feet up quickly. You, you, same thing happened at 30,000 feet. The same thing can happen. So you need the same thing to treat it. You need pressure to put all that air back into the system or the oxygen into the system and, and displace the nitrogen. But where initially came from the hyperbaric oxygen was mostly from the military system. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that was to help divers who were, they were doing some extraordinary things. They're going down, you know, 50, 100, 200, 300 feet. And when you get down there, you have to have different, oxygen gas mixes uh, otherwise it could be very dangerous and so the 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 method or the we call it the call it the specialty was very specialized that's a double word right there but very concentrated <laughs> in that group of people right there who if you if you ever seen a, a hyperbaric chamber some of these older ones they had all kinds of dials and dives and everything and they had to it can be kind of frightening and so it was kind of left to, you know, the divers, you know, who were working on these things. So it really wasn't left with a lot with uh, the general public. 
But what would happen is, is that divers get hurt, divers have injuries, and they would notice that when they would get treated in these hyperbaric chambers, suddenly some of their problems went away. Aside from what they were getting hurt from, they may, maybe they cut themselves, and they noticed that when they were being treated into a hyperbaric chamber, the wounds started healing quicker. And from that outgrew another, you know, uh, indications for where we got hyperbaric right now, things like diabetic mm -hmm. foot wounds, air gas embolisms, where I was talking about where you say you come up so quickly and the gas comes out out of, out of solution and you get the bends, um, the carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, people, that's one way to treat carbon monoxide poison. I, I did a lot of those. I did about a few of those in my, in my fellowship, you know, family in the winter, you know, they put a kerosene lamp or something in the room, try to keep warm and they all, and they all get sick and you got to treat the whole family in the chamber. So that's where a, a lot of it came from the military. And then it kind of slowly moved out, you know, into the general public into, you know, things that, you know, we normally hear about your friends, mostly probably diabetic foot wounds and things like that. Mm -hmm. Does that answer mm -hmm. your question? Yes. Uh, can you explain um, a little bit more simplistically what actually happens because you talked about the the gas coming um, out, but A, how does the gas get into the joints? Um, and B, when it's coming out and they're decompressing, what happens to it? Okay. Um, so maybe I'll explain it this way because you think of, we, we think of gas. We all know of hemoglobin, right? We got red blood that has the hemoglobin in it. Okay. That carries oxygen to all of our cells. I mean, every single cell in our body, you know, the red blood cells carry the hemoglobin. And, you know, hey, we need oxygen to cell. You dump off, let's call it a train load. It dumps off some oxygen and it gets what it needs. But think of that as uh, the red blood cell as a locomotive train. And we got 10 cars. Okay, 10 cars. And it's got, you know, oxygen in all those 10 cars. That's all that it can carry. You know, if you have more oxygen, you don't have, uh, if you have more oxygen, you don't have any more car uh, uh, carriages or cars to put that oxygen in. So the in that case, more is not, is not better. Yeah, more is not better in that you're not going to get any more oxygen um, than what you can carry in your red blood cells. However, the beauty of hyperbaric oxygen is, is think of that as, all the air around this train while it's moving. And that is your serous fluid. You know, mm -hmm. we have our red blood cells and then we have our fluid, which helps move your, your red blood cells through the body. That fluid gets supercharged or increased with oxygen. And so not only can you dump off oxygen, you know, to your cells, you can also infiltrate everywhere else this fluid is going you know, at higher amounts than the body could actually normally grow physiologically with, uh, with, with your red blood cells. And so that's probably, probably the best way to describe it. It's sort of like, um, how, how would I describe, um, you know, this is probably a bad analogy. If you had a mocha when you went to, I mean, uh, an espresso when you went to a triple, you know, a, a triple espresso, you're getting more of this in the same thing, you right. know, in, that value in that in that medium okay so so, so if i 
sorry just there's two things uh, one first of all yep. it's funny because you're talking about the 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 bends and you know the more common thing that we we've seen in movies and and you know it's very common in submarines discussions the compression rooms where you have to stop and get you know in between and get all that you know uh summer decision when you're climbing up or not climbing up we were from a dive coming up fast you can't come up fast all that stuff uh right. and, you know that's that's typically what i think most people would probably refer to uh, and then the other thing is that you you explained this about the dosage of or the how much oxygen can you possibly have and you can't have a lot more than your body needs. And actually, this discussion I had prior in, during COVID because uh, we we know oxygen was a big thing, you know deal, and uh, a lot of people were treated through with oxygen. And I know, for example, in some countries. There was a lack of oxygen available in general for the, the population and and for treatment, and uh, you know there was a discussion one time like you know where we can buy these these oxygen tanks or oxygen containers that you can you know like leisure stuff that you can pump. And I had asked the doctor personally, and I said exactly what you said that you know just buying it doesn't mean it's going to do the right treatment. You have to have the right one and know how to do it because too much of it can also hurt you. And so, right. so that that's a great clarification for our audiences because. We just think that, yeah, let's just buy a couple of canisters from Amazon and maybe that's going to help us. <laughs> and, and maybe there is there is some some merits to that. But, you know, maybe you can expand on what would be types of oxygen and where we can get it. But really, that's a big deal because some people can make that mistake and thinking that I'm going to get more and maybe ultimately have a reverse, you know, reaction, adverse reaction. Right. Rather, you know, right. So. And there are side effects to oxygen uh, therapy, um, right. so much so that they've actually even changed the oxygen treatment protocol with um, rescue. When people have heart attacks or whatever and they're, they're down, we don't automatically give them oxygen anymore because oxygen is considered a drug and oxygen can have toxicities. So, Frank, in uh, piggybacking off of what hurricane just asked mm -hmm. if you can elaborate too on the difference between uh hyperbaric and the oxygen bars that popped up and were, uh, were yeah. so popular for for a minute if you can tell us what the difference is <laughs> and uh whether those are effective or not even so the difference is is pressure uh in an oxygen bar you know they have a tank there and they're just giving you oxygen and you're breathing at one atmosphere, just as we're all right now, we're at one atmosphere. And that's different than say being in a tank where you have more than one atmosphere. Now, mm -hmm. now here's an interesting thing. Now, long before I, I came into medicine and uh, <laughs> when I was in the military uh, flying um, and I didn't know this, I'm not a drinker, but this pertains exactly to the oxygen bars. Now, your audience out here doesn't mean that you can do this, <laughs> but some time of our, our aviators would tie one on. <laughs> they would tie well, one on, you know. When they, <laughs> I didn't do that, but uh, sometimes they would tie one on. And we actually had, uh, when I was in the Navy, we had, I think it was a 12-hour bottle to, to brief kind of rule. Last time you can consume alcohol was like 12 hours prior. But sometimes some of our aviators uh, buddies would know that if they go out to the plane and suck down pure oxygen, it clears the cobwebs out. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so long before I was in medicine, I, I had a taste that, oxygen while well, seeing some of my peers 
if they went out to the plane and pre-flighted prior to, you know, their 12 hours, it would clean out the cobwebs. So you just move that to an oxygen bar and it's almost like the same thing because those oxygen bars are usually associated close to the, to mine, maybe to the alcohol, <laughs> you know, so, so it's a quick, it's a quick fix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might get you home, you know, <laughs> you know without right. um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on it for passing that breathalyzer. Test. Yeah. <laughs> That's That's a, that. uh, yeah, well, However, well, timing, timing is everything, right? There you go. <laughs> uh, but what I would say is that, you know, a lot of times you might hear something on, on YouTube and and say, oh, well, I can do that. It's just oxygen. You know, there's only like 12 percent. And unfortunately, more is not always better, like like Cheryl is saying. And you know, there were people who will, will probably say, well, I can build a chamber and I'll just make sure I can get a lot more oxygen. It is dose dependent. And if you go under pressure too long, you will seize. You will have a seizure, you know, at a certain depth. And if you're for a certain amount of time, it is guaranteed everybody will seize. And so that's why you have to, you know, I want to say be careful. You have to be cautious and you have to kind of know what you're doing. You know, it's, it's probably best to be safe. So any of your listeners out there, you know, don't make a homemade one and say, well, I'm just going to get a lot of oxygen and clear everything out because it could be dangerous and you could have a seizure. And then, you know, trying to get you out, that could be a problem, you know, if they bring you out too quickly. So yeah. I and just want to put that out. There are a lot of other things associated with that because we are talking about oxygen and oxygen is flammable. So if you're bringing yes. one of these into your home, um, then there is a certain element of caution that you have to exercise. It's probably not a good idea to think that you're going to bring in an oxygen chamber and then you're going to sit in it and smoke, you know, <laughs> you're not do well. uh, bad combo. <laughs> bad combination. I, I, I won't say the conference that I went to because then everybody will know uh, what this conference was. And I don't know who was listening, uh, you know, to this. But let's just say I heard a well-named, well-known personality said, well, you know, I'll just go in the chamber and I'll just smoke a tote. Everybody <laughs> heard that. Now, that, I, I have to caveat. If it's just air, that might be okay. But when you're talking about some chambers where they're pressurized with 100% pure oxygen, um, Cheryl is of my age. We remember Apollo one, you know, the spark. Yeah. And I think it was Gus Grissom and mm -hmm. Kathy, I believe, and somebody else. I'm sorry. I forget the last, the last name, you know, that was a spark in that, uh, in that capsule and they were locked in. Yeah. So yes, you got to have a prudent amount of caution. We you know when you're talking about oxygen and in fact, they have had, if, when, and Cheryl will know is when you've, you've done the courses, they have had accidents all throughout the world where um, people think it's just oxygen is safe and they get lax. And they had one, I believe it was in Florida or was Texas, where, um, you know, a kid brought a toy in there. They did a spark or something like that. And, you know, two people died. Um, I've, I've heard one. And when I did my training, it was a, it was a heater. In a, in a pure oxygen environment, yes, it, it exploded. So you have to have an abundance of caution. You kind of have to know what you're doing. And it's, you know, when there's a doubt, there's no doubt. Be safe. That was an adage I used when, when uh, 
when we use the pre-flight planes. If there's a doubt, use the same thing. There's no doubt. Be safe about it. What, what do doctors? And you know. one of the interesting little asides is that I actually went to Virgil Grissom Elementary School. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. <laughs> wow. I sure did. Actually, wow. my, my my kids do, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, they, they have them all over the country. So, <laughs> but but you know, it's it's amazing. You said that about the you know how flammable and things. But but uh, talking about mm -hmm. elementary school in in the first you know uh, school years, you you do learn about the flames and you know oxygen flame, blue versus you know yellow flame. Right. The more oxygen, right. the more. So so it is exactly that. I mean, I think everybody at a certain point understands the danger of pure oxygen and more air that goes into that flame and makes it more stronger uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to the other way where it's just no oxygen and basically dissipates. Uh, we we know about the whole candle thing. You just, you know, basically cover it and mm -hmm. then no, no more air and it, it shuts down. So so that's actually analogies that we can refer to and we know that is not a picnic. And yeah. when it's concentrated levels and tanks, as you mentioned, or even rooms that are completely saturated with pure oxygen, that is that is very very explosive and flammable, so it's dangerous. But, yes, um, absolutely. Usually, any place that's worth the salt is is going to mitigate all of those things. You know, they'll mm -hmm. have wear they'll wear cotton garments. You know, I couldn't wear this into into the chamber. You wear only cotton. You know, you're not going to take anything metal in there. You're not going to take your phone. You're not going to take your iPod. Your iPod. You know, uh, probably might even remove your earrings. They'll even, you know, go to the point point where you won't even want to wear makeup. You know, you know, you just right. go yes. and plain. And the reason you know, for that everything. is because some of the makeups have aluminum in them, have right. metals in them, and metal yeah. oxides in them. So, so it's your your yours like the way you were born is the way you probably should go in with cotton clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you presented that, Doctor. <laughs> as sweet as possible. Like you to go into, I guess, for a visit, right? Just get a right. one of those, uh, you know, blue garments, and that's it. Um, so, Doctor, you did mention uh, briefly uh, some of the the things that you you treat with, and I think Doctor Cheryl, I think you wanted to to get to that. Um, right. So you mentioned something about diabetes and a few other things, but can you just expand on like what is the use of of you know the medicine the medicinal piece of it or the medical piece where and what treatments or diagnoses you know can be uh, taken care of with that uh, you know uh, oxygen uh, specialty or therapy? So that's where it gets really kind of interesting. Um, um, when I was talking to Cheryl a, a few days ago, you know, I. I think there were less indications when I went through my, my training, I think there were about 12 to 13 indications. That meaning when I say that those are what Medicare will pay for, you know, that things like diabetic foot wounds, carbon monoxide, poison, air gas, embolism, necrotizing fasciitis, things like that, um, that Medicare will pay for that. Um, and then there's what, Physicians are allowed to do, uh, depending on how the country goes, <laughs> off-label <laughs> uses of off-label uses of stuff. And these off-label uses of stuff are, I mean, the list is long, and um, it's it's pretty it's pretty profound. I mean, people are treating mm -hmm. strokes with it. People are treating, you know, autism with it. People are treating, you know, diabetes. There's sepsis. You know, there's a lot of different indications, I mean, off-label indications for which people use uh, hyperbaric oxygen. And so um, 
you know, in my training, um, I have to admit, I, I was, you know, trained, this, this is what you do. Um, and, and I'll, I'll, and I say this, so I was doing a lot of reading. I was doing a lot of research in the, in the early parts of my fellowship. And, and I would say there's more going on here than just oxygen. I mean, cause I'm, I'm reading all these literature because I, you know, I had access to like PubMed and I could get all these articles and I would say, there's a lot more than going on here than just oxygen, you know, the pressure of oxygen and increasing, you know, the, uh, the tissue attentions of oxygen. I thought there was a lot more going on and can't say I was encouraged to say that too much. Um, and, and then interestingly enough, um, there were a couple of things that, that kind of changed my mind. Um, um, I don't want to get too technical, um, but, um, with your indulgence, there was a, there was a gentleman, um, named Dr. Dory. He was in, he's in, he wasn't, I think in Texas, I want to say San Antonio, but I don't know exactly where he was in San Antonio. And I ran across this study, you know, um, and he was talking about white rabbits and hyperbaric oxygen. And I thought, well, it was kind of interesting because they basically had two groups. One group, they fed both rabbits, if you can imagine this, arthrogenic diets. You know, I don't think they were eating hamburgers or something like that, but whatever an arthrogenic diet for, you know, a white rabbit, because they call it a white rabbit. Uh, and for, they, and for, our audience, for our audience, explain what an arthrogenic diet is. Oh, okay. Uh, your standard American diet. McDonald's, <laughs> cheeseburgers, things that can cause cholesterol, you know, build up, you know, fatty. That's basically it. You know, you know, things that you know, are going to give you problems with your cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So they were going to give this to the rabbits, like I said, whatever it may be. And they divided them into two groups, just two, simply two groups. One group that got hyperbaric oxygen and one group that did not. And... And what was kind of interesting about that is when I when I read his study is that when they did the cholesterol levels on the uh, on the rabbits, they were exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what? They're exactly the same, but the rabbits that had the hyperbaric oxygen had less to almost no buildup of plaque in their arteries. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> What is going on here? You know, I mean, right. it's like, what is going on here? Cholesterol is the same, but the plaque buildup is not happening with the rabbits who were in the chamber. I mean, th- that sounds kind of profound. You know, I think this was kind of before, you know, statins were just coming out and, you know, statins right. were a big, bad, evil thing. And I literally called him up. <laughs> I mean, he had three studies. I literally called him up and you know, tracked it down, called them up, and I said, hey, what are you doing next? Because this one rabbit, you're going to be working with people, you know, next, you know, I thought there might be a, a trial. And he said, they, right. they closed down the chamber, so he couldn't do any more. And I'm right. like, oh my gosh, you know, this, I thought it was profound. I thought it was profound. And then interestingly enough about it, and this is a little bit more technical, technical our, our patients, they know what their HDL is and their LDL. You know, you've heard of that before? Good yes. cholesterol, Bad inflammatory cholesterol. cholesterol, the LDL. So when I was talking to Dr. Dory, he said that, and he had done some other tests in there. One of these tests was called oxidized LDL. 
And he said, oh, the guy who developed that oxidized LDL, now you can buy this test. You can, you can get this test. You can order this test. But this was then considered a bench test. This was about 2007, 2008. This was still a, kind of like a research thing. The guy who developed that test was at University of California, San Diego. He was right where I was doing my fellowship. <laughs> and, and so I, I tracked him down and I kept, you know, kind of pestering him. You know, here's like this little fellow, you know, I'm a family practice. I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not an emergency room doctor. You know, I don't have the swagger of, you know, these guys are bringing in lots of money. And I kept, I kept pestering him. He kept ignoring me. And I think one of my preceptors said, you know, just go ahead and do it. And so I was actually able to get a study. Um, it's not published or anything, um, but I was actually able to get a study through the IRB in, in San Diego, University of California, San Diego. And we were looking at oxidized LDL with, with uh, hyperbarics. You know, now I'm not a statistician, uh, but what the doctor said, I can't even remember his name right now. When I showed him some of the data and I didn't do the computations, I had a statistician do it. He says, hmm, that's kind of interesting. There, there might be something there if you can go with that. And, and then my fellowship was over. Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> but those, when I started, when I was starting to delve into that vascular range of it, there was a significant thing that kind of changed my my focus or my view on hyperbarics. Um, and I, we, we've talked about this. So about halfway through my fellowship, my, my son was born and he had a traumatic birth. I mean, you know, I could see the woman, you know, pulling on his neck or arms were shaking. And when he came out, he had what's, what's called a waiter's tip, which signifies there's a, probably a brachial plexus injury, meaning that nerves up here have been stretched, um, torn apart, uh, damaged in some manner. And he was literally paralyzed on his left arm. Wow. And, and so I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm like, okay, you know, obviously we were kind of heartbroken, but you know, otherwise he was healthy and I'm doing all this reading and I'm seeing inflammation. I had read, read, uh, read stories or studies about hyperbaric oxygen helping with peripheral nerve regeneration. I'm like, if there's anybody who's going to uh, benefit from this, it's a baby. And right. this, was about a, this was about a year of a year or two after there's a significant study that came out that showed that if you go in the chamber, stem cells, you create your own stem cells. And that's a that's a big time thing. That's basically mm -hmm. a cell that can turn into anything that it needs to turn into. And I'm looking at my son and I'm saying, well, if there's anybody who's going to create stem cells, it's going to be a baby versus a 90-year-old. And, mm -hmm. and, and I'm treating patients every day, and I can't get him in, into those chambers because the 13 or 14 indications, Medicare is not right. going to pay for them. So you actually have to go you know, outside that and, and do that, somebody who's going to pay cash for it. And now, when you when you talk about going outside and paying cash for it, what does that look like? How much are you paying for a single hyperbaric treatment and how many do you need? So that's 
that's a very good question. It's dose dependent. I don't think anybody really knows. It, it, it depends on the person, how they're going to respond. And I think it depends on the area. So we, mm-hmm. I think we're paying in, in the neighborhood of about 180, I think 170, 180 per dive. And we pay for a block of them. If we played like one at a time, it would probably been like $200, you know, a dive. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a treatment session. They still use the nautical term, maybe terms die. <laughs> yes, yes. And it does depend on where you get the treatments, because if you get them at several of the hospitals, um, each city usually has at least one, but several of the hospitals have hyperbaric chambers and a treatment in the hospital is usually going to run you somewhere around $500. So they can be quite costly expensive and and even more so when you start doing like say diabetic foot wounds and in medicare and what medicare will say they'll pay for it and you know what they uh what they actually the, the hospital actually gets for it so and how many dives does something that you treat uh usually take i mean it clearly is not just one dive usually so uh, no. on average how many dives are people talking about when we start treating things Again, that's a, a, a very variable thing. Uh, you know, if it was an air gas embolism, boom, I've seen people return one dive. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have, I would say you need, I want to say, I want to say how many did you need, but I can give you my personal experience. Okay. So our son, he, he could not supinate. So this is supination, like a soup bowl right here. So what he would do is he would use his pincher fingers and he would pick up, you know, like a Cheerio and he would go like this and he would open it up and the Cheerio would fall, you know, so he couldn't get into his mouth (laughs) and we started putting him into the chamber and granted he was getting occupational therapy and physical therapy, you know, at the same time. And around the 10th, 11th uh, dive, he started doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and he would get it into his mouth. And I was like, and I told my wife to say, I'm taking off my doctor's hat and I'm putting on my daddy hat. You know, I say, is he doing something different? You know? And she said, I didn't want to say anything, but I was seeing the same thing too. So mm-hmm. we saw something in the neighborhood of the 10 to 12 die range where, you know, he started supinating his arm. Now he can't go all the way. But he could feed himself, which is something he, right. he could do with the Cheerios and the pincher maneuver. Now, maybe that was just a natural progression of the nerves healing. I don't know. But it started when we put him in the chamber. Yeah, I think it was a natural progression because my experience having put people into chambers before, because I also worked with hyperbaric oxygen uh, therapy. And my experience having put people into chambers before was right around the 10th dive was when we would start to see some pretty dramatic changes. And I know with um, my young son, uh, he had some neurological damage. He had had a fall from the bed and had had a bleed into his head. And so he had some neurological damage from that. Plus he had a rare liver disorder called Allergy's syndrome that caused bleeding. So he had had multiple little bleeds in, into his head and he was highly intelligent, but he had some cognitive deficits. And it was interesting because when we would send him to school, um, 
those deficits would be apparent. But when we would put him into the chamber, right around the 10th dive, every time he went into the chamber, his teacher would say the next day, well, something was really different with Gregory because he was really on point today. So around the 10th dive, they, I mean, they started to see a difference right away, but around the 10th dive, they saw some dramatic gains and and with other things that I'd seen treated, autism, uh, different things. I also saw that right around the 10th dive was when I saw the gains really start to, to go up. And a lot of times we would put people into the chamber for anywhere from 20 to 40 dives. So it depended, again, like you said, on, on what it was that we were treating. But you you did see it was kind of you needed to hit a critical mass. You know, you would see some, 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 and then boom, you'd see a change and you'd start to get big gains. So, yeah. so if, I, if just, just something that comes up, you know, and to my mind right now, that someone like me, again, not medical, uh, listening to, to both of you doctors, you know, talking about that 10 time, right? But also we talked mm-hmm. earlier about dosage and, you know, yes. uh, different capacities, different, you know, levels of oxygen uh, pressure. Yes. So would, would that mean that if you were to maybe, uh, I guess, uh, increase the dosage in, you know, in, in, in the chamber for someone, will that, uh, I guess, expedite the, the uh, instead of the 10 dive, maybe it's the fifth or the sixth. I mean, just curiosity. I mean, again, you know more in the, in the medical piece of it, but, but I mean, that's just what comes to mind. Like, you know, if it can be done that way, maybe they are the same levels, like medicine, right? You know, you up the dosage and maybe it changes, you know, the, the results. So does that work the same way? Or it would not work because we talked also about the dangers of increasing the oxygen. Right, right. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Cheryl. I, I think that, I mean, there is some variation there and there is some room for increasing dosages. It really depends on what you're treating, but there also comes a point of diminishing returns. So wow. you really do have to know what you're you're doing. And on, on that note, a lot of people, um, particularly people who have a, a good amount of money, celebrities and athletes and such, they do buy chambers. Um, and kind of my thinking on that, and I mean, I'm a physician, but never once did we go into the chamber without somebody else there to monitor. Mm. Because if I went into the chamber with Gregory and something went wrong, I mean, there are two problems. If something went wrong, I could be impaired and unable to do anything about it. But the other part of it is, again, you are under pressure. And if something goes wrong, you can't just jump out of the chamber because uh, just like with the dive, you have to go through a period of decompression. And, you know, you can decompress at various rates, but you do have to go through a period of of decompression or you're going to have some difficulties. And there are there are things that can go wrong with, uh, you know, with the dive. And, you know, you can get things like oxygen toxicity to your eyes if you're too high. And, they're, they're, and the other big area, because you shouldn't just decide, okay, well, I'm going to buy a chamber and I'm going to jump in because I, I'm, I'm sure as Dr. Cummings will um, tell you, we do have to screen people before we put them into the chambers. What are some of the things that would prohibit you from putting somebody into a chamber? 
uh, pneumothorax. That would be one. Mm -hmm. That's a big uh, one. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, absolutely not going in. Uh, another is they can't clear their ears. You know, mm -hmm. they can't. Uh, like if you if you can't fly because you can never clear your ears, you're not going to go in the chamber. You know, mm -hmm. not, not to 2.4 ATA, you know, or, or 2 mm -hmm. ATA. Um, uh, that'll be painful. That, you know, mm -hmm. that, they'll never want to go into the chamber. Excruciating. That'll be excruciating. I've done it once, <laughs> you know, and you will never <laughs> do it. Excruciating. <laughs> excruciating, painful. So those would probably be the, uh, the two big ones. Uh, there might be some medications um, that, you know, maybe I would, I would hold off from going in the chamber. The big one would be like the pneumothorax. And if you can't, you know, you can't clear, your, can't clear your ears, you know, that's, yeah. I, I wouldn't go in the there. The one that comes to mind for me is um, COPD. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be real careful with that. You know, real mm -hmm. careful. You know, there's a the question you were, uh, Hurricane, you were talking about. Um, and I think this is where the art of medicine comes in, um, where, where you, you look at your patient, you kind of, you understand your patient, you understand the tool that, that you're using. And it's, Okay, how do I use this tool? You know, it's it's not a Betty Crocker medicine. You know, it's like, and right. where you know, you just turn the dial, you walk away, and you know, fifteen minutes, out comes <laughs> you know, you know, a, a well person. You just you can't okay. do that. And and I'll, I'll give you, a, I I won't tell the place. I don't know where exactly where it's at, but I remember a place in Southern California um, when this was after I had finished my fellowship, and they have a chamber like I have. Um, I'm not going to say what type it is, but it's a chamber like I had. And um, I walked in and I was observing the place right there because I was thinking about opening my own place. And, and so I asked the tech. So I said, "Say, hey, how, how do you operate this chamber right here? He says, well, I don't know. They just told me to set it to this thing right here. And then uh, we put the people in. And I'm like, whoa. Oops. <laughs> All bad. I All mean, bad. He had no understanding you know they said you just die and in, in this case you don't dial you just set a couple of levers and then you put you put the patients in and i think that that in some cases gives i want to say gives hyperbarics a bad name but when everybody when a lot of people do that then it can get bad press you know yes. you get bad press and and you can make mistakes and I have made mistakes, um, um, like Shura was talking about, um, uh, where, you know, you could have something go wrong. And I did something wrong to myself, not to anybody else. I wouldn't dream of doing it to anybody else. But I went in the chamber by myself. And I went to 2 ATA. I wanted to see. And, you know, just to see how it was going, going to be, because I usually go that deep. And lo and behold, I felt a palpitation. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I felt and, and it, 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 yeah, there you go. Explain what palpitations are. Oh, in my heart, you know, like my heart was like, you know, skipping a beat and palpitations like that. And I'm like, this is not good. This is stupid, Frank. And I slowly got myself out of that depth. I said, I am not going there again unless there's somebody on the outside, you know. Right. And so. People can get into that, you know, that situation and very easily if they don't understand what's going on. Now, I had seen it before in other patients, you know, when I had treated. So I know what was going on. And so I said, 
I averted myself from, you know, probably getting into an extremist situation. But if you don't know what you're doing and you're not familiar with it, you know, you could hurt yourself or somebody else. And then and the other part of that is, um, is, is really that you need to be, you, you need to know what to do in the event that you do get into, uh, into trouble. Um, you knew what palpitations were. You knew that it was because of the chamber and that you had to bring yourself up. You knew that you couldn't just jump out of the chamber, that you had to bring yourself up uh, slowly. But in the event that we'll, we'll say that it was this person who just turns the dials and someone's in there and gets into trouble and doesn't get out of the chamber quickly enough and perhaps has a, a, a rhythm that deteriorates into something bad, that person on the outside of the chamber needs to know how to respond quickly. They need to, they need to at least be CPR trained. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they need to have enough of an understanding to be able to address whatever issue may arise in that chamber. And it may not be because of the, um, because of the chamber or the oxygen itself, even, I mean, any number of things can happen to people at, at any time. And, you know, if you have them in a chamber, you need to get them safely out of the chamber and address the issue at yeah. hand. So it, that's important that uh, you don't just buy a chamber and have your neighbor <laughs> monitor it. Right. So, ab ab absolutely. Absolutely. So, so can I yeah. go ahead? Go no, ahead I, yeah. A couple of things. I One yes, is I, what you, you mentioned, I have a chamber and just to clarify, is that like something that, like you, and you mentioned also that Cheryl, that people have the chambers. So does that mean that people can actually purchase this? Is that what, what we're talking, we're hearing? Cause I, that's I, a couple of times it came up and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's all done in a, in a medical facility or something, but it sounds like it's a private thing that you actually acquire. And, and is that correct? Yes. Um, so there are several places that you can, um, that you can have them. Usually okay. you have to have a prescription, but, you know, with enough money, you know, prescription can go by the wayside. And so, <laughs> so, so uh, yes, you can, you can purchase those and you can, a lot of people do them and put them in their houses. So yeah, you can, okay. you can do that. Interesting. Well, they don't have to be in hospitals. I guess the cost is, is, is eventually amortized, but you know, over time, if you're going to go per session, I mean, and buy those dives, I mean, I think over time, it's like a payment plan. You probably do better if you need it. And that leads me to the second part of the question is that if yeah. it seems that it works for certain conditions and it's obviously a great thing to have and to, to pursue now, uh, now I want to put my head, which is the actual payer side. <laughs> I'm an insurer. And and so from and I know you talked about Medicare and I just want to clarify a couple of things for folks, uh, you know, because you were talking about your son as a baby and then Medicare and usually we relate Medicare typically just to the elderly, uh, but Medicare can people can qualify at an earlier age depending on conditions and someone is mm -hmm. uh, disabled and have some sort of disability you know that's ongoing and again uh, that can vary in a lot of things after twenty four months they can qualify. Mm -hmm. but, but also from an insurance perspective, I mean, it would behoove us, you know, as insurers or payers, and I'm not talking, you know, uh, I don't own an insurance company, but I work for insurance in the industry. Uh, 
we always looking for to manage care and make sure that the, the patients, uh, unlike what people think that, you know, we don't want to pay, uh, at least I'm on the government program, some on the Medicare side, you right. know, on the commercial side, I can't speak for them. But but the right. idea is that we want to prevent people from really having, you know, bad outcomes, right? And so anything right. that can be preventative or that can, you know, uh, relieve these, these, these uh, you know, uh, diagnoses or uh, these symptoms or even mm-hmm. help people live a better life or healthier life, you know, we would want to be interested in probably investing or at least right. paying those things and add them to benefits and so so uh with you know is there are there other other insurance i mean you mentioned medicare what about medicaid i mean we know medicaid almost covers everything uh this this probably is something that is more uh like you know uh extra so obviously that might not be under the 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 the, the coverage but the managed care world sometimes uses you know few additional supplement benefits or supplement you know uh, add-ons so to can to, to be more attractive for example in the medicare space you know if you have a medicare advantage plan you might want you know we always looking for new benefits that we can add to our population and therefore something that can benefit them and again it seems that this is something that maybe can be a, an open discussion to see like there is an opportunity here maybe to add it as a as a benefit if it's not i guess forbidden by uh, but the, the government or cms uh you know mm-hmm. We are regulators, so sometimes they don't allow certain benefits uh, to be right. added. So, so again, I just wanted to, to to put that on the table because it seems that there's some you know merit to this to to even discuss with health plans and things. So maybe someone can pioneer that from the medical space, and you know we can maybe connect that dot you know somewhere and help people access a service or a treatment or therapy that, that can make a difference in somebody's health. And, and also cost wise, it's probably cheaper, you know, for the health plans to, to, to pay for something upfront to, to this level and prevent maybe catastrophic, you know, uh, uh, outcomes at hospital stay and, and things like that, or even more severe, you know, uh, problems at home. Um, so yeah, that's it. Would you agree, Frank, that this has lots of, implications when you take into account that oxygen uh, can work very effectively against inflammation. So it has implications for for cancer, for chronic diseases of of all sorts. Uh, It could be a significant tool. Yes, it's it's um, there's a saying probably outside and maybe even with the, uh, the hyperbaric community, it's a therapy looking for a disease. Um, exactly. Yeah. It's a therapy looking for a disease, but when you start looking at some of the mechanism, it makes, it makes so much sense. So, mm-hmm. and when you're hurricane, when you're talking about um, the Medicare, you know, will they pay for it? Um, in my training, um, there was a gentleman. He was a he was a navy diver physician physician, and he was early on in the UHMS. And he told me this story when I was in in my fellowship. He said, uh, you know, now all these indications are starting to come up for you know for the hyperbarics, and so he had to go to Washington. He had to go to Washington and say, hey, we can treat hyperbarics with this. We can treat this with hyperbarics. We can treat that with hyperbarics. Because uh, it, it shows that it works. And over in Europe, they got like 100 indications. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so he went there, and the way he said it, he said there were guys there in black suits, you know, white shirts, and they said, you can't have that many. If you have that many, it will bankrupt the system. <laughs> mm. 
So that's how we got like our 12 or 13 indications. The fact that Europe had many more indications really didn't matter. They basically said, yeah, maybe, but you can't have that many because the system would be bankrupt. But like Cheryl is saying, it, it can fix so many things, you know, or address so many things. Um, uh, I don't know how much time you have, but I, wanna, I wanted to go into something like Cheryl was saying with the inflammation. So that's a thank you for the tea up for that. <laughs> the, uh, um, but inflammation is, is, is one of the things that's associated with chronic diseases. But we're not going to go so far in my journey. We're going to go four months after my son was born. So now he's got this paralyzed arm. And, uh, and then all of a sudden he developed Kawasaki's disease or syndrome which is an inflammation of the medium and small vessels in your arteries. So this was a four-month-old whose left arm is paralyzed, you know, and our son, and now he has this Kawasaki. He has this cherry red tongue. He's got palmar erythema. I mean, it was just like red, red. You know, he's got 104 fever. And, you know, and we treated them traditionally, but here's the problem. With uh, children who have Kawasaki's, there's an inflammation of the coronary arteries. These are the vessels that supply blood to the heart. They can give medicine that can calm that down, but there's a small percentage of those children who two, three years later, they're running around and they fall over dead. Mm -hmm. And that happens because there's a rupture in it. There's an aneurysm in the coronary artery. That's inflammation that's going on. And aneurysm happens in this coronary artery. And I'm thinking, okay, that is what prompted us. You know, those two things, I said, he has to go into the chamber. He mm -hmm. has to go into the chamber, not only for neurogenesis, for, you know, for the stem cells, for his brachial plexus injury, because I don't know, you know, is he going to be that 1%? Or right. there's even data out there for the children who have Kawasaki's that some of these children, you know, in their 20s, 30s, have early development of coronary artery disease. Was your pediatrician supportive? Uh-huh. Was your What's pediatrician that? supportive? Um, they didn't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, you know, the data in my mind was pretty clear. There were a lot of upsides, very little downside, you know, and we're still going to have to pay out of pocket for this. And, and so what... What prompted me, I mean, he did well, like I said, and he, you know, he's playing football now. He still has to get a coronary, he got to get a, a cardiac clearance, I think, every couple of years. And he's doing, he's doing fine. But that journey actually led me to, to, to look at hyperbarics a little bit different. You know, I, then I, was, I don't say I was off the reservation because I still love wound care. I still love wound care and, and, and taking care of diabetic foot wounds and, you know, they're never ugly to me. And, and, you know, taking care of patients, they're very appreciative. But when you start looking at some of the mechanisms, you start seeing a commonality among a lot of different things, a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. for instance, and, and, and I think some of your, your, your audience uh, should, should look into this. So don't believe everything I say. I mean, I encourage, I tell my patients, don't believe everything I say. Go look it up yourself and see right. if it makes sense see if it makes any resonance to you and Perfect so advice. so one of the things that i that i noticed is that 
A wound is a wound is a wound. If I cut myself here, that's a wound. If I have a wound on the inside with an aneurysm, that's a wound. If I have a bleed in the brain, that's, that's a wound. Mm-hmm. And when you're thinking about wound care with hyperbarics, there's some commonalities in terms of the pathophysiology. Okay, I want to get into detail for like for some of the patients. But one of the things that I, I found out, and I want to jump from here, then we can go to what's kind of going on in the world right now in terms of whatever's floating around out there. It's something called almost like a beer. But, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but um, the, the, there's something called MMP9s. Fancy word for a matrix metallic proteinase. What that does is it breaks down the extracellular matrix. What does that mean? I don't want to talk uh, talk gobbledygook, but imagine what does it do? It, it, it breaks down stuff that has been damaged. So an example, an analogy would be, let's say the wall in your house, um, um, a ball goes through it and you got this, this hole in the wall right here. Well, a lot of times you don't just pass that wall. Maybe you have to clean out the area around it, put up more scaffolding, and then build right upon that. That's kind of what the MMP9s does. If you have an injury, these MMP9s go in there and they kind of clean it out. They kind of clean it out. Now, that's an issue with something called vulnerable plaque. Mm. So this is, um, we're going to call this, oh gosh, if I, we're going to call this your coronary artery right here, okay? Okay, and, you know, doctors will come in. Yeah, it's a straw. <laughs> We're going to imagine here. But this is a coronary <laughs> artery right here, okay? And your doctors come in, and they'll put a stent in here to open this up. You know, they'll, they'll put a stent in here to open this up. But one of the explain, things... After- explain to the audience what a stent is, because some people aren't going to know what a stent is. Uh, a stent is something that will open this up. And, you know, when you take a straw and you... You do this, and it opens it up. It, it makes it so fluid can flow through there. So that's what a stent does. It's a, they have bare metal stents, and they have, they have drug-eluting stents. But a stent will go in here. The issue, they always say, is you have to worry about, it's called the vulnerable plaques. The vulnerable plaques are usually on the ends. They're usually on the ends. And what happens is, if you, they've done autopsies, and the vulnerable plaque always, most of the times, has high levels of MMP9s in the base, the basement right here. And so you have plaque right here. Uh, and what happens is, is that a piece will flow off. So, like, imagine a, a, a chip paint. Mm-hmm. Chip paint goes down here. Same thing happens in your arteries. That's vulnerable plaque. It's just on the inside. And it's because the basement membrane, the MMP9s, ate around the basement membrane because they're trying to heal a wound. That chip paint or plaque goes downstream and causes the heart attack or the stroke. Does that make any sense? Yep. Yep. Okay. So that's what happens to the kids in the Kawasaki's is that they have this smoldering fire, inflammation, that probably goes on for two or three years, and then all of a sudden, the balloon burst. You know, you had a balloon and you go too far, the balloon burst, 
that all the water comes out or all the air comes out, all the blood comes out and the patient dies. So one of the gentlemen who, and I, I put him off for almost two, three, two or three years, Bob Scott, uh, Robert Scott, um, uh, Sands rather, Sands. And he said, Frank, do a study, do a study, do a study, do a study. I said, okay, fine. You, you helped me with other chambers. I will, I will do a study. I will look at something to see if this makes any sense. And I focus on the MMP9s because they're in vulnerable plaques. They're in strokes. They're in diabetic foot wounds. They're in, yeah, they're actually in COVID, in pulmonary and <laughs> COVID. You can look it up. There's high levels of morbidity associated with high levels of MMP9s and COVID. And, and I said, well, let's just do a study where we're going to look at MMP9s and we're going to put somebody into a chamber. And so I had to find a patient who really had no comorbidities. And I found, we found one and they volunteered. We had an IRB and what we, uh, and we checked their MMP9s before they went into the chamber. They had an elective surgery. Elective surgery is a wound. They got cut. It's a wound. The body's going to try to heal it. Okay. So she had, they had an elective surgery and the MMP9s skyrocketed. I, I think it was like, I don't know. I forget the number, 600 or whatever it was. It went up and, and then immediately after we put him into a chamber for like three days, but we checked it each day, one hour in the chamber, there was like a 43% reduction in MMP9s. Wow. One hour. That's huge. That is That's huge. <laughs> huge. One hour. So we're talking about something that can reduce maybe the vulnerable plaque damage, the stroke things like of that one hour in the chamber and i think it went down to 30 and then 23 percent one hour in the chamber i mean the cost on that is minuscule in, in terms of other things mm -hmm. and that so, the, the the management of the morbidity if, if something yeah. you know goes wrong down downstream absolutely absolutely um and um and so we talk a little bit off label that was my my first thing I had gotten this paper right here. There was another paper. I never could find this author, but we're talking about, can I, can I read just the title? Is that all right? Sure. Useful of hyperbaric oxygen therapy to inhibit restenosis after percutaneous coronary intervention for acute myocardial infarction or unstable angina. So basically, okay. you're having a heart well, that attack. That was great to our audience. <laughs> okay, okay. Using hyperbaric oxygen if you had a heart attack or chest pain from angina. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> so here's the, the, the genesis of this or the synopsis of this is they took two treatments. Person had two treatments before they had the stent put in. Remember the stent from the, well, I crumbled it up. <laughs> the stroke. The stroke. <laughs> treatment, and then they had the stent put in, and then they had, uh, I think, two treatments after that. So a total of like four treatments, and they had a control group, and they had a uh, a uh, the the actual group. So here was the the thing: um, major adverse events at eight months was found only one of 24 patients who received hyperbaric oxygen therapy compared with 13 of 37 patients who did not. Okay, so that's a, a very statistically significant difference. Very much so. So you're saying, 
uh, you can go in the chamber and prevent the your your uh, your stent from clogging back up because the body's going to try to clog something up. If you put something foreign in the body, the body's going to try to close it up. Right. So this this paper right here said there was only one in twenty four for wow. having an adverse event was 13 out of 37 and those who did not get the chamber and it's very wow. low cost. And, and, and I, and I looked at that and I said, well, why aren't they doing this? Hmm. Now we get into the politics. I think, I mean, this is just my, my thinking when this came out, I think they knew that drug eluding stents were coming down the pipe. Mm -hmm. Because before they had drug Competing. <laughs> yeah, they had only bare metal stents. And so you'd go in there, you had to get a stent, and then it re, re you'd have to put another stent in there. So that's why they came up with the drug-eluting stents. But I found even a paper, and I'm not going to show it, but they even showed that even with the drug-eluting stents, hyperbaric helped. So it's a political thing, I think. Well, <laughs> well yes. Why it's not talked about more. Well, doctors, you know, so so from from my perspective, right, not being again a medical person, I yes. see I see all advantages based on what you just said here, and and mm -hmm. you know, just putting politics aside, if this is something that is not usually covered by insurance, I mean, this could be commercialized in a different light, meaning that this is a therapy that you can do. You you can choose to go to PT on your own or a chiropractor yes. to just pop your bones, right? So 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 you can possibly do this. So if enough word is out there that I mean, I have friends who have cardio problems, you know, in 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 their family, and uh, you know, this could be something that just going a couple of times, maybe a year to get treatment can't supposedly what well, based on these the, the articles and these are real studies and those numbers are really yes. big as you said Doctor, they're, they're not they're not minute i mean they're huge uh yep. so so the, the the significance is that someone that may be prone to some disease or something can go in advance just do some treatments uh not as frequently but at least a couple of times and could definitely reduce any risk that they may not even like you said those football players they don't know until it bursts you know three years later but had they gone into this chamber a year before or two years before they could have reduced that information and Absolutely. and it's all over so so for me there's it's not a brainer i mean there's no brainer here we gotta we gotta do more work on this <laughs> right absolutely. This. <laughs> absolutely absolutely um can i give you another little caveat because i yes. i really want to get this out there is, is that all right um, actually we're, we're, we're getting close on time, but this is, this is so interesting. I'm, I'm game for giving a little bit of extra time. How about you, Hurricane? I'm good. I'm, I'm so excited. It's not funny. So just keep it going. <laughs> the floor is good. Go for it. Thank you. So, um, in my reading, I, uh, and this kind of germane to what's kind of happening kind of recently and in the kind of semi-distant past, I ran across some studies were showing where they had, again, this with the mice, that if they put them in the chamber before they gave them a stroke, these mice did better on the cognitive test. No, they didn't have IQ tests, but they can find the cheese or something like that better. Um, right. If they went in the chamber before they had the stroke. So, um, so let's go forward with the maybe 10 years or eight years or what have you. And I, this happened to me. So I, I have a bad reaction to peanuts and I accidentally got some 
And, uh, and I remember driving back on I-5 and I was telling my wife, I'm like five minutes from diverting to the ER if things don't get a little bit better. And I could feel this penis running through my body. And I was going up in altitude. So I was going up over um, uh, the grapevine. And I remember I was almost near the top of the grapevine and boom, <laughs> after I got through my whole body, I felt this pop in my head. And I told my wife, I just felt this weird like pop in my head and I've never felt anything like, like that before. And so um, drove all the way back to Stockton and over the next, five, the next week, weird things happened. I bit my, I bit my lip twice. You know, it's like, okay, in a week. I kept running into the door jam on the left. You know, when I, I go out to see my next patient, I would like, I would run into the door jam on the left. And I would say to myself, really, Frank? You, you can't walk through the door? You know, or. Instructive. <laughs> and, or I, I, you know, I talked to my, you know, I talked to my staff and they kind of look at me like, and then I said, okay, slow down, Frank. So I'd slow it down. They didn't understand. So the next week, you know, I drive back down to San Diego and I, I do a lot of alternative things, you know, you know, thanks to hyperbaric, some other things. And, you know, I, so I ground, I do some other things and I was grounding and I like to take aspirin. I don't like to take Tylenol. And so every single time I stood up that week, I had an eight or nine out of 10 headache. I mean, and I would get maybe like two or three headaches a year. But every single time I stood up, I had an eight or nine out of 10 headache. And, and when I got home, when I got down to San Diego, my, my wife said, well, what's going on? Well, I just got a headache every time I stand up. And it wasn't until the next day when um, we went to the movie, she said, you should go to the ER, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so I go to the ER, you know. And I do all the nose testing thing like this, you know, rubbing the thing, you know, I pass all the neurological tests, you know, I do the one foot ahead of the other, stumbled a little bit at the very end, the last step, you know, I was pissed about that. Uh, but they said, oh, you did fine. You did fine. And so I thought they were going to just kind of let me go. And then, um, and they said, we just need to do a CT scan. We just need a mm -hmm. CT scan just to be sure everything's okay. And he walks in the room and you know the look, Cheryl. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, look. Uh, something, no bueno. Something is terribly wrong. It says we can't let you go. You have a massive subdural hematoma. You know, it was on the right side of my brain, from right here all the way to the back. And the brain is like jello, and so I have this pressure that was on the high and is pushing down, which kind of made some of the sense of why I had some left side of neglect. You know, I, what, a, I, what a hematoma is, is a, is a giant clot, a giant blood clot on the brain. And that's probably what happened when I had that pop and it had been bleeding for a week, probably. And I was taking aspirin, blood thinners, grounding, thins your blood. So I was I was doing all you're of these lucky things. You're alive. Stuff. <laughs> you are lucky you're alive. But here's where it, tains, it pays to be lucky. I have been treating myself in the chamber prior to that. I was just like the rat or the mice where I had treated myself prior to having this bleed in the brain. So here's where it gets interesting. Um, 
my surgeon, you know, he said, let's wait a couple of weeks before we do this. Cause I was, I was like pretty much stable, you know? He said, let's wait, you know, a couple of weeks before you do this. Uh, they want to do a craniotomy. So they wanted to open up my skull, suck out all the blood clots, put a titanium plate back in. But they said, let's wait a couple of weeks. You just can't drive. And they gave me anti-seizure medication. I said, okay. Well, I knew from my readings, there was one place that I needed to be. And right. that was in the, I was in the chamber. And fortunately, the chamber was there in San Diego. And I came up with a protocol for myself. 90 minutes, twice a day, lots of vitamin D. Uh, there were some other things I was doing, you know, kind of exercise in the brain, exercise, going outside, not a stitch of clothing on. I mean, I was doing everything to try you know, to help my brain and get ready for this potential surgery that was coming up. And, and here's, here's where it gets kind of interesting is that, so I'm in San Diego and I'm going to have this neurosurgery. And I told my wife, well, if things go bad, you need to put me in the chamber. So I, I, I asked a few people, you know, who I did the fellowship with, they were my attending. And I said, Hey, if it goes bad, will you write a script to me so I can just go to this off-label place, you know, to have a, a hyperbaric chamber? They would not do it. Right. They would not do it. Train with them. They would not do it because it's not one of the 13 or 14 indications. So I wrote a script right. to myself and I gave it to my wife. And, and for your audience out there, when somebody has a brain injury... You have to give them slack. You have to understand that this is not the same person. You know, you know, I'm medically trained and I did stupid things, literally stupid things. So the, the doc said, you can't drive. So you know what I did? There's a tanning bar a mile away. I'd walk there every day with the widened gate slow as a turtle <laughs> it'd take me like an hour to walk a mile i'd go in the tanning booth and i'd walk back i did that for about three days you're not thinking correctly you're not thinking correctly the you last really needed a tan enough to walk all the way to a tanning booth <laughs> <laughs> yes i was getting my tan on in san diego how did that figure uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the last day, the last time that I did it is uh, I was so exhausted. When a person has a brain inju injury, you're exhausted. Your brain is just using up all your energy. And I wasn't getting that. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't cognitively processing that. But I remember looking at, we lived a little bit up a hill. It wasn't a great hill. And I said, I rested for about an hour. I said, okay, now let me walk up the hill. And as I opened up the door out of the Starbucks, because that's where I was resting, I had that left-sided drift, and I face-planted right outside Starbucks. Now, mind you, a week earlier, I was in the ICU <laughs> with a bleed in my brain, and now I face-planted right outside Starbucks. And... I am upset. Thank God I didn't knock myself out. You know, I was using my Navy language. <laughs> <laughs> I was using my Navy language, and obviously they called, they called the, um, uh, the ambulance. 
-hmm. And the ambulance wanted to take me to Scripps. And I said, no, you got to take me to Balboa because I have films there. You got to be able to compare. They took me to Scripps. They would see, they would just see a man with a bleed in his brain. We need to do surgery. And so they, since I was still awake, they took me on my wishes. They took me to, uh, to Balboa. And fortunately, there was no more bleeding in the brain. But I broke three bones in my left hand. Okay. And so I give you that story because there are people who've had strokes, you know, and there are mental changes. And, and they're all out there. You're, they're your audience. And I've been there. I wasn't thinking right. You know, after that, I was, I was stuck to the house on the second floor. I couldn't leave unless somebody was there with me. And mm -hmm. there were times where I would just like break down, and start crying. I don't know why. Very, you know, labile. And uh, but that's from a brain injury. And um, and you know, fortunately, I think the protocol worked okay. Um, you won't believe the name of my doctor. I'm not gonna making this up. His name was Doctor Clue. <laughs> doctor <laughs> Doctor Clue was my neurosurgeon. He was African American. <laughs> Really? Okay. <laughs> and, right. you know, I thank God for him that he didn't operate on me right away. You know, he did the surgery. I recovered well. And, and then I just made sure that they do neuro testing on me because I had to go back to the wound care center to make mm -hmm. sure that I was cognitively able to do, you know, to do the work, you know, and I was mm -hmm. able to do the work. And, mm -hmm. and then my dad, he had a stroke recently and we're putting him in the chamber and he right. had the chamber last year. Uh, several times. And so we think this was, you know, somewhat protective that he was actually, you know, in the chamber last year. Now we're trying to make it a, a little bit more uh, uh, regular. So hopefully it'll come down this weekend, you know, uh, to come in the chamber um, for that same rationale of the rat study and what just happened to me. And there are lots of people, you go online and you'll see, you'll see lots of things like this. And by the way, MMP9 is involved in, in bleeds in the brain. It's, it's, it's yeah. all there. Just changing directions, and this is just going to be a little uh, shorty answer. Okay. Um, in, in my mind, there are implications for the use of hyperbaric oxygen chambers in the treatment of post-COVID syndrome. So I'd just like you to comment on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, like I say, where I work, but uh, there's a gentleman I work with, he has access to chambers. And I said, hey, hyperbarics for... Uh, uh, what do you think about that? He said the Chinese are doing it. The Chinese were treating um, uh, some of their people in hyperbaric chambers. If you look at uh, if you look at some of the the, the data on PubMed, and um, that's a clearinghouse for research studies. What sometimes I geek out on, if they show that there are MMP, high MMP nines in people who are having serious pulmonary morbidity from COVID, serious pulmonary COVID. If you, but if you put them in a chamber, maybe you could reduce that. All it's going to take is an hour. You can reduce some of the MMP9s and maybe stop some of the, uh, you know, some of the perfusion ischemia that was going on, you know, because they, they were literally suffocating a lot of these patients. So I'm assuming, I'm assuming that that also extends to the, the brain fog that COVID patients pretty much complain of across the, the board and uh, even COVID patients that don't have post-COVID syndrome um, still complain of that brain fog for an extended period of time after the conclusion of their COVID. 
I've, I've had a couple of patients uh, like that. And, uh, you know, prior to, I guess, Sunday, you know, I would, I would kind of lay out some of the, some of the data, you know, I saying, Hey, this, this is the data right here. This is published up uh, in terms of COVID, some of the long haul symptoms. These are some of the, uh, the people who are actually doing good work, you know, or out of the box work. However, um, I think on Sunday, uh, our governor, can I say that? <laughs> yes, well, I, I, I mean, I'm in Jersey. <laughs> okay. Uh, our governor and to, our today, governor, today you're in Jersey, so don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Our governor in, in, in California says, Newsom says that we cannot share with our patients anything that is different than the CDC in terms of treating COVID and those related issues. Not minding that I got, you know, studies and we're talking about the morbidity and mortality and, and, and people over in China were doing it. We can only do what the CDC says. You know, I call that a Mussolini move. You know, that's it's, it's exactly what it is. Um, this is the same guy that was telling us that we had to wear our mask, but didn't yeah. wear them for his dinner parties. Right. So I can guarantee you that if he is in the situation, he'll be using that hyperbaric oxygen chamber if he thinks it will help him at all. Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm almost tempted, you know, to to get like a, you know, a, a six foot cut out of him and put him in in my office right here with a little, you know, a little blurb above him that says, he cannot tell you anything about COVID and alternate treatments and just let my patients see that. Well, that's because that's the law that he just signed. I mean, right. Like, and it would be great if all the doctors do that because I think the patients would riot. I was like, right. what do you mean you can't tell me anything? Because he says, I can't tell you anything but what the CDC says. Wow. And again, we talked about that being a really, really slippery slope when they start making those regulations. But we're not trying to make this a, a, a real political uh, show because I could we're not. We're not, not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to. You could probably yeah. edit that out, maybe. Well, well no, but, yeah. but guys, it is. We're not talking politics here, but but the fact of the matter, people should know that if you're in California right now, your doctor is not going to prescribe anything additional to what the CDC. It's standardized, and that's it. Which is. You know, right. So people now are aware that that is not to their benefit. So what they do from there, it's on them, right? <laughs> they they can yeah, they can absolutely. rise to the occasion and 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 do their lobbying, whatever they have to do to make a absolutely. difference. Or maybe voting absolutely. is coming up, so maybe they can talk about that too. But but the fact absolutely, that the matter, because it really is the patients that yes. uh, have the control. Uh, yeah. You know, they don't realize that they have the control. They're like, well, doctors are so knowledgeable, and you know, doctors have control of all of this. We actually have very limited control, particularly if we work inside of a system. If we're independent private practice, we have a little bit more say on what we do. But then now you have governors saying that, you know, we can have our licenses revoked and, you know, we can get fined, so on and so forth. But if you're in working in a hospital system, your system tells you what you can and cannot do. And if you go outside of that, you're not going to have a job for very long. So, so that, that brings a question to my, you know, I mean, obviously I've had various guests from different backgrounds in the medical world. And so we have the naturopaths and we had, you know, one we've, we have the, the Ayurvedic, you know, medicine, we have the Eastern medicine, we have all kinds of stuff. So in this light, I mean, some of these practices, some of these, you know, solutions that, that are real 
working. And, you know, if they go, if they get adapted into that particular world, which is not regulated by the CDC the same way, I think that could be the end for people. I mean, I'm just saying it makes just an idea that maybe if we can just take some practices and move them off from the standard medicine or like, you know, the Western medicine or the conventional medicine and put it into something that is a little bit of, you know, separated or, you know, that is not perceived the same. Maybe that can be a, a you know, a, a smooth move that, that can still allow people to get the treatments that they need and therapies and stuff without having to get into the political arena that we we're <laughs> observing around the world anyways. But thinking about that is um, if, any of these treatments or, or therapies um, require a higher level of intervention where a physician might need to um, intervene or where a physician might be making a recommendation, we can't even now make that recommendation without risking having our license revoked. Uh, agree. Well, so then that's the question. I mean, it, I as a well, licensed, you know, as a board certified doctor, right? Can you also be, you know, I guess a naturopath on the side or doing something different? Does that even... You can be, but the problem with it is if you have, you would have to give up your medical license as long as you uh, have a medical license. I mean, and, and the extent of this is um, I was not licensed in the state of uh, California because I had been moving around and I was in the military. And um, so I wasn't licensed in the state of California. And when I came to California, I needed a job. And although I could draw blood and everything perfectly well, I could not even work as a medical assistant or a CNA um, because those are in the medical field and would be it would be construed as practicing medicine. You know, I'm changing a bedpan, but it is still construed as practicing medicine because I am a skilled physician. So, you know, it, it, it's crazy and it, it makes no sense now. Um, you know, I have colleagues and one of them will be bringing on to, to the show. She's the director of integrative medicine for the state of California. Um, and she is an MD and she is also a Chinese medicine doctor and an acupuncturist. And she uses all of those modalities within her uh, clinic, but there are still certain things that she is not able to, to recommend within her institution um, because well, she's a licensed physician within her institution. So, I mean, you know, you can kind of get around that by talking to your integrative colleagues and saying, Hey, you might want to make a recommendation for this. And I mean, she'll, she'll frequently do, do that with me say, Oh, Hey, you know, I have this patient that I'd like you to, to see and, uh, you know, discuss with them X, Y, or, or Z, which now I can't do because I have a governor who's, who says, I'm going to yank your license. If, if she refers the patient to you and you tell them to do this, you're going to get your license. Yay. Well, doctor, you, you know, I know you and I met the first time and the show was about integrative medicine, you know, like preventative yes. and, and integrative medicine. And we've talked about that and, you know, but, but again, a lot of, you know, uh, clinics these days, they have multiple disciplines, right. Within the clinic or the facility. And so some doctors do actually have additional providers that do different services to your point. Now, right. I think, I think the new practice will be just, just have 
a colleague that does that and they just readily available when someone comes in, you know, by default, they just say hi and they just say, you know, let, let me try these things. <laughs> What's on the menu here? I mean, you have to, obviously you have to work around the as system. As long as they're not, as Referred. long as they're not in a hospital system, Setting. because even, even they're regulated, uh, you know, by Correct. the hospital system. Correct. But people would very easily be aware of that. This is where you go if you want this. <laughs> That's, you know, it's all about education, right? I mean, yes, right. there's always a way. This is not a loophole. This is actually just a fact. You know, it's a service available. It can be privatized as just the, we're talking about yeah. oxygen chambers or like exactly. oxygen bars. Well, we make them, exactly. we make them, you know, the same way. You can just have your treat exactly. here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry, Doug. It just, it's just very, you know, amazing that this is, for me, I would recommend this for every prevent, like when you do your well checks, you know, like whatever your preventative, yes. you know, annual checkups, yes. this could be like, Hey, yeah. you get yourself a treat, you know, do this because that could probably yes. prevent one year of, problems that you might encounter and if you do have them right. probably the effect will be less or the outcome will be less right right so you can imagine how frustrating it is for us as physicians knowing we have in our hands a tool that can do so much good but we're restrained by these regulations that are for the most part usually made by someone who has maybe a high school degree you know uh, they have no real concept of, of medicine. And yet we're strapped by, by that. And, you know, our, our Hippocratic oath says above all do no harm. And we're doing harm when we Lots don't recommend a therapy that we can know, we know can help a patient so much. And it's, it's, it's very frustrating. And when we lay down at night, we lay down knowing that we haven't done the best for our patient because there is something out there that they could benefit from that we are not allowed to recommend. Well, unfortunately, I mean, you, you're in California and, and this is, I guess, just the beginning because once one state starts, many other follows. And, and, and I have to say, I mean, the, the next one that usually follows is, is our, you know, uh, neighboring state here, which is New York. Right. <laughs> uh, right. You know, so, so they go kind of like in tandem there. They're very, very aligned. Yeah. And uh, so I can just yeah. imagine and then everything that, else falls in the middle. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how it's going to play, but I mean, I haven't heard anything in the works here, but, but you know, you never know. I mean, things change quickly uh, around the, 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 the state, the, the tri-state area here. So they're sliding in. I mean, a lot of this stuff, they're sliding. I mean, there are a lot of physicians that don't even have a clue that some of this is, has happened yet in, in California because, you yep. know, they, they couch it with other things. And when you say, oh, by the way, your rights as a physician have just been removed from you, they're like, what? <laughs> but they don't realize so, that so just, it's going on. Just for clarity, you said this coming Sunday or the past Sunday that just, you know. So this is official now. That's it. It's done. It's signed. Official. It's law. It's been signed. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Signed, sealed, and delivered. So he's he's in the office with me right now, you know. Um, and, and it's right now it's only for COVID, but um, mm -hmm. like, like Cheryl said, that that will change. Um, I think uh, a point that you mentioned, Cheryl, is that the, the people really need to drive this. Yeah. Our patients really need to drive this. Um, and they have to become stewards of their own health. You know, you know, I, yes, I tell my patients, you know, I can't save you. I can't cure anything. You know, there's, I can give you information, but you have to do the work. 
and I don't want to say like you have to do the work. The what I usually tell them is I say that okay, there is we're gonna hurricane. We're gonna use the Big Apple as the uh, as the bastion of hell because you got the apple, the green apple, like you know you give to the teacher, the bastion of hell. <laughs> Big Medicine wants us to take I-80 and they control all the off-ramps. That's what, that's what medicine is, is most of the time is you're the apple of health. They want you to take I-80 because they can control all the off-ramps. They make money coming and going and everything off the off-ramps. But you, I'm speaking to your patients out there, your, your, your clientele, your audience, is that you can get to New York many different ways. You can crawl, you can fly, you can swim around the Horn of South America, you can tunnel <laughs> if you're industrious enough. There's a thousand different ways for you to get to the big apple of hell. And I'll yes. tell you, sometimes you won't make it. Sometimes you won't make it. But if you do, you know a hell of a lot and you probably know more than your provider and you are the captain of your ship. And I look at myself as I am not the captain of your health. I look at myself as a navigator. It's like, yeah, there are rocks over there. You probably don't want to go that way. Maybe <laughs> you want to steer this way over here. You know, people have gone this way before, but that uh, you might sail off the end of the world. that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> didn't but that, that's the point is that it needs a partnership and our patients have to have an active partnership in their health and also with their providers and not just their providers their provider team you know because it's right. not just the doctor it might be their massage therapist it might be their mental health counselor you know it might be their spiritual guru it might just be their dog who's their pet i mean your whatever right. your team is you know you as a as a health not as a patient, you need to be in charge of your team. And yes. not force, but push. Ask questions. Because McMedicine will not get it all the time. And don't be afraid to ask for a second opinion. You know, if you if your doctor has an issue with you getting a second opinion, you need to get another doctor. You really need to get another doctor because your doctor should never have a problem with you getting a second, a third, a fourth, or even a tenth of, uh, opinion. Um, we don't know everything. We are practicing medicine. And there's a lot that any particular provider that you go to, whether it's your physician or your acupuncturist or whoever, there's a lot out there that they've never seen and that they don't know. That doesn't mean that they're a bad provider. It just means that medicine is a huge field that we've just scratched the surface of. And we know a lot less than is out there. And we're still learning. I mean, medicine is changing on a daily basis. The stuff that we say is so today may not be so tomorrow. And I, as a provider, may not have heard that it changed because it just changed yesterday. But someone else who just happened to be there when it dropped knows about it. 
I don't know that. You heard about it because a lot of times the advertisements get it before we do. And you heard it about it on your television that I'm not watching. And you come in and you say to me, well, what about such and such? As a physician, Mm -hmm. I don't know about such and such. And hopefully I'm a good enough, confident enough physician to say, I don't know, but I'll find that out. Or I don't know, but let me direct you to somebody who does, but you cannot count on that being the case. So if your physician says, oh, I don't know, that doesn't exist. Don't, don't worry about it. I need to get a second opinion. And if you're, again, if your physician has a problem with that, time to find a new one. Well, thank you, thank you, doctor. And, and by the way, Dr. Cummings, you mentioned something early on about the, the Medicare only covers 13, and then in Europe, they have over 100. That just mm-hmm. defines exactly what you just said. I mean, the fact is, what we have here, there's plenty of stuff available that you probably even know, but you just can't use because it's yeah. irrelevant here. And that's, you know, some people actually travel overseas to get some of these things done just because that's the option. Uh, it's crazy, but yeah. that's the, yeah. And the reality is there is a lot overseas. There's a lot in Europe. There's a lot coming out of China and, and Japan. I mean, I have some uh, modalities that I use that are not FDA approved here. So it limits how I can use them. And again, a source of frustration because one of the products that I use, it's like they're using it uh, in Europe and Southeast Asia. And they're they're having tremendous, phenomenal results with it. And yet... I can't use it for the patients here because it hasn't gotten our FDA uh, approval. And one of the things that you can't assume is that because it's out there and, you know, they're using it in Europe, you know, a hundred different um, ways it can be used in Europe. You can't assume that your American doctor knows about it because unfortunately um, we tend in the U S to have tunnel vision in terms of what we look at, which is just what is funneled to us. Um, you know, we, we, we tend to be kind of sheep in that way. And because of the way the system is set up and, you know, most doctors are, are overtasked and seeing way too many patients to really be able to sit down and think about each patient carefully, they don't necessarily have the extra time to do the research and find all of these things that are available. So um, it is not going to be an unusual thing. And I mean, consider that if your doctor says, I don't know, don't think your doctor's a moron. Your doctor just hasn't been informed on that particular thing. And, you know, if you've gone on the internet and you've found something, then, you know, hand it to your doctor and say, you know, can you uh, look at this. Now I have uh, a wonderful cup here and my, my cup, I don't know if you can see it, but what it says is please do not confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Okay. (laughs) So just because you Google searched something and it sounded like a good idea to you, everything on the internet is, is not necessarily so, and there's a lot of fake news and fake science on the internet too. So don't, you know, come jamming your doctor up saying, you know, you have to do this. If your doctor says, I don't think it's a good idea, again, you're entitled to get a second opinion. And if your doctor knows it's something kind of crazy, your doctor really isn't going to have an issue with you getting a second opinion on that so that somebody else can tell you that's crazy. So, um, you know, again, I mean, the bottom line is, get a second opinion, 
if you feel like you need one, do your own research. You know, try and do it with reputable sources if you can. Um, and if you have a question, you don't know what a reputable source is, use your doctor as a resource. Is this a reputable source? Um, what do you think about this? And uh, can you recommend somebody else that I can talk to about it further? Um, two heads better than one. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the you're, you're absolutely right, Cheryl. And I think one of our, I don't want to generalize, but, you know, I'm going to call it a failing of the medical system. I really don't want to call it that. But the reason that, you know, fortunate enough to become uh, physicians, and this is a real simplistic thing, but it's because, yeah, maybe we did have a passion, but one of the things we could do is that we could bubble a better answer than somebody else. Literally, we could sit our butts down and put in the right bubble on a question, you know, more times maybe than somebody else, you know, and that's supposed to be, you know, the standard of, okay, well, this person is smart enough, you know, to become a doctor, you know, sometimes it takes some common sense. Sometimes it takes being able to see, you know, literally see the patient and not the person see the patient the whole thing and that is not something that is always taught in school they're trying to get better with it but you that know that part is the art of medicine the art that of is medicine. the art of medicine and the, and the way medicine is set up right now um with evidence-based medicine they're very much going towards it being strictly the science of, of medicine and you have to have both yes and how did the how did the science of medicine of covid work for us <laughs> okay. The evidence—it was evidence-based. <laughs> well, there's, 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 we can, we can beg to differ on that one. There's a lot of opinions yeah. about that part, and that's where the politics get in. So, yeah, no, I, I don't, we're, we're not getting there. But it's, it's what I think. What the thing that the Cheryl was getting on is that sometimes, or there's historically, there's an arrogance. Mm -hmm. There, there's an arrogance. Well, I'm. I went to med school, you know, I studied for 10 years, you know, I know this stuff. Um, I'm smart. And I'm, and I'm smart, you know, but that's not everything, you know, and, and I think a real good physician gets taught every day by the patient that comes in and shows them something yes. or tells them something, yes. you know, willing to, oh, I didn't think about that, you know? So I take a lot of time for my patients because a lot of times, you just have to listen. You got to just listen. A lot of times they'll tell you what they need. But, you know, a lot of times we're in the process of just telling, you know, mm -hmm. and we're telling we're hearing our own drumbeat. You know, right. we're in our own voice, you know, but we're not we're not hearing the other voice in the room or the other voices behind that person in the room. And and that's that's what you said, Cheryl. That's the art of medicine. Right. And on, on that note, there was one further question that I wanted to ask, but I, I've decided that we're not, I, I'll put the question out there for you to think about because we're going to bring you back. And I think I'm going to do an entire uh, show on that uh, because we talked about your, your son and, and the uh, trials and tribulations that you went through uh, as a parent 
trying to help your son to the best of, of your abilities. And one of the things that I was thinking about, and I, I used to actually uh, have support groups to that effect, is that most of the support groups, um, when we have illness involved, most of the support groups are set up to meet the needs of women. And so what I want you to think about, and we definitely will have you back for this, is what were the things that you did as a father to help you get through this situation with a sick child, functioning as a, a, a caretaker um, with you know the stress of Will my child live? Uh, will my child have impairments? Uh, you know, what is the future going to be like for my child? How do I do what's best for my child right now? What do I need to know? How can I best support my my wife in this situation? I mean, there's so much involved um, in functioning in this world as a man uh, that is different than the way women function. Um, and so the support systems aren't necessarily geared towards supporting them. So I want you to think about that. And we definitely are going to have you uh, come back and we'll, we'll talk about those and we'll have uh, kind of a father's session uh, <laughs> where, where, where we talk oh. about what it's like to be a, a, oh, a father supporting a family. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for doing that. <laughs> uh, I think I think it will be an interesting show. And and, and what well, Dr. Cummings, I mean, the, the other part with you would be that you're not only the father, but you had two two personalities literally dealing with this as a doctor and as a father. And sometimes where that line crosses, it's very and difficult. Another show, right there. <laughs> I know that's a tough. I don't know. I, I I'm not in your shoes, and I, I I don't think I want any shoes. That's a tough way to think about it. And as a father, personally, I know that is not easy. And and yeah, I mean, definitely, I love that. That so, doctor, you're in. You're hooked in. That's it. <laughs> you you'll be back. <laughs> um, uh, Absolutely. I I love talking to you. I mean. This is kind of a conversation I usually have with my patients. <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, what are your patients today? <laughs> usually those are like, they're apologizing to me because they're taking all of my time. <laughs> I'm like, that's why I'm here. <laughs> you know, not, not a lot of people would say that. I mean, I, you know, that is not a common, you know, uh, practice these days. Unfortunately, uh, we, as we said, the first show me and, and Dr. Cheryl is that, you know, the average visit is 10, 15 minutes. That's not enough to, to know your patients. And, uh, you know, I know, uh, with different types of, you know, approaches right now, that's changing and models, but, but there's way, way far from where you really go back to the old traditional medicine when you take your time with the, you know your patients and understand them. But again, I know we, we we've exceeded our time, you know, and we can talk for another hour easily. Uh, it's getting dark. I'm looking at your 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 couch. It is ten o'clock here, so but but you yeah. definitely like you know we we saw the sunset with you here on the show. It's <laughs> like it's getting dark over there. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Dr. Cummings, Francis Cummings Jr., D.O., thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been enlightening. I'm sure that our audience has taken so much good information out of it. 
Uh, if you are interested in learning more about hyperbarics or Dr. Cummings is located in Vacaville, if you happen to be in California, if you're interested in, in reaching out to him, we will have his contact information posted with the show so that you can reach out to him. And you can always also always reach out to us with any of the guests on, on our show that you want to reach. And we'll make sure that you're able to make contact and we provide that information for you. Dr. Cummings, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on board with us. And again, yeah. we, we hope to, to see you again very soon. I can see that we can probably have a series of, <laughs> of different conversations uh, with you. Uh, and all right. And so we, um, we would like to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this very interesting talk. Uh, you know, if you have any questions about anything that you see on our on our show, please feel free to post them. You know, we want you to go to our sites. There are multiple sites where you can access these shows. Uh, we want you to go to all of those sites and like them, share them, and make comments on them. We do look at those, those comments. And if you have questions, if you have suggestions for shows that you would like to see us do in the future, we do read those comments and uh, we'll be happy to bring these to you because as I said at the beginning, the purpose of our show is to educate and entertain, but at the very most, this show is for you and you are the ones that we want to serve. So bring it, whatever you bring us, we'll try to address. Thank you for joining us and hopefully we'll see you back with us again next week on Chatters That Matters. Let's talk about it. I'm your show host, Dr. Cheryl Bryant-Bruce, MD, The Celebrity Doc, with Hisham Elamanti, Hurricane H. And thank you, Dr. Cummings. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.